Welcome to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. In today's episode, I am checking in with freelance journalist Matt Graveling. Me and Matt met when I worked at Bart's Health in the NHS when he came and did a piece for BBC London at one of our hospitals, the Royal London. Since then, and having worked a load of different beats throughout his career so far, Matt has become a freelance sports reporter for the time being and has been on the telly quite a lot recently, interviewing lots of sports stars and doing different sporting news stories. In this episode, we discuss how and why Matt got into journalism and his love of meeting people his previous lives before journalism as a dog walker, an NHS worker, and packing boxes in a factory. We talk about how he fought tooth and nail to get where he is today, but yet still doesn't feel quite as stable as he should be, even as an established journalist, and the anxiety of being a freelance journalist when it comes to getting work. We also talk about the competitive and brutal nature of the industry and the impact that has on his mental health, and how the constant news cycle can affect a journalist's mental health too. For Matt's mental health, Matt went through two big life events in his late teens which had a huge impact on him and his family. The first was when his mum's friend's son took his own life. His mum was a teacher and the boy was at the same school as her. The second was when a teenager was hit by a bus outside of the school his dad was head teacher at. Both these events rocked his family's world for a significant period of time and Matt spiralled into a depressive state. He got to the point where he realised if he didn't get help, he could have felt suicidal. He then sought out his family GP and was eventually put on medication and we discussed that experience in this episode. We finish by discussing the death of his father, who he lost to blood cancer, on the 19th of February 2022. We explore that grief, him having to step up in his family as a man, how his family has changed since his dad's death and how we use running, specifically running the London Marathon, in October 2022 as a way to channel and process his grief. So this is how my check-in with Matt Graveling went. Matt, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you for taking the time to let me check in with you and get the train all the way down or all the way up from Southampton to come and see me and interview me, interview me, interview you in North East London in my flat. It feels like a a very long time ago since we did that BBC London piece and several other pieces uh, in my old job at Bart's Health, isn't it? How are you, mate? I feel like I should be interviewing you, mate, to be honest. <laughs> always, is, always time, mate. It's always time. This is uh, turning the tables. I'm all for it. I'm here. And I've got my coffee, so the caffeine's already running through the veins. I'm up for a session, but yeah, to be the one being interviewed rather than interviewing feels a little bit weird. Yeah, I've, I've interviewed a few journalists and that exact line has come up a few times. So you're not you're not alone, mate. It's the, it's the lack of control, I think. <laughs> I, can, I can steer the questioning 
any which way when it's me giving the questions but when i'm doing the answers it hey keeps, it's a good step out of your comfort zone mate it's i'm good, yeah. very now on the other side i'm very uncomfortable just, <laughs> despite this lovely couch and it is a lovely couch <laughs> cheers mate it's a very cheap one the pillows do a lot of work for that for that sofa i'm always very keen to give journalists a platform on this podcast mate especially ones who have worked as hard as you to get where you are today so without further delay are you ready to start the show let's start <laughs> Let's begin your podcast by talking about this journalism journey you've been on, Matt, for the last few years. So take me back to the beginning first, if we can. What inspired you? Where did your love for presenting or storytelling or reporting come from and the journey to where you are today? Wow. Um, I mean, I really don't actually consider myself a journalist, which is really weird considering the the area (laughs) of work that I'm in and the bills that... You know, I pay with the money that I earn as a journalist, but... I hate to break it to you, mate, but you're on TV a lot doing journalist stuff. <laughs> yeah, I know. People tell me, they're like, oh, I just saw you on the telly. But yeah, it's weird. I never went out to be a journalist. I just love people. I love people. And my only real main goal in life was to do a job which I loved. I worked out at a pretty early age that I'd be spending the majority of my time at work rather than at home with friends, family, loved ones. I'd be spending the majority of my working day at work. And I just thought, if I'm not doing something I love, then what's the point? Mm. What is the point? And so I think for me, once I'd done a degree in biology, which as you can imagine, doesn't necessarily come into effect much. Or involve people. (laughs) Or or involve people. (laughs) Lots of animals, not many people. But once I kind of got that done... I really did stop and think, like, what can I do? And I bounced around loads. I worked in the charity sector for a while, events management. I worked for the NHS. All people-related careers? Definitely. All people-centred. The charity sector was great. I mean, it was hard work. But <laughs> I can was, attest to that as well, having been in the charity sector for a while. Yeah. It was relentless. I was doing events management, so I was trying to organise events. And Were you also the CEO and the financial director and the comms director? <laughs> you're, you're a little bit of everything yeah. doing that job. And of course, at the end of it all, you are responsible for raising money. And if you don't, you feel the future of the charity is at stake. But once I got a couple of years under my belt in that, I, I felt it wasn't really necessarily for me. And Why? I think Probably because it was too much hard work, (laughs) if I'm brutally honest. I think it was really stressful. Mm. It was super stressful. I mean, actually, organising an event was quite fun. You'd be like, oh, let's have this, this... uh." Yeah, the fun of the event is good. Oh, man, the extravagance of a ball and we'll get this uh, musician to play and we'll have this food. And it was quite nice making this event, but then you actually had to sell tickets. Yeah, I always say to people, selling tickets is the hardest and most stressful part of doing events. It was... And it's the longest part, by the way. I lost sleep. Yeah. seriously I would know how many tickets I needed to sell to break even mm. and until that number had been reached I was losing sleep oh and you're testifying to everything I do with the with event nights <laughs> it's tough isn't it you know that there's money on the line it's not your money you're playing with and although you're working your hardest sometimes there's things out of your control so it became quite stressful and I just thought you know what I need to do something else and I loved the idea of the media. I didn't really know which area of the media I wanted to occupy at that time, but I thought radio was quite cool. And a lot of people that I'd spoken to who worked in the media had used that as a, as a way in. And so what I did was I, I did what most people used to do. I don't know if they still do, but I called a hospital radio station. 
And I was like, can I come in? And the first one didn't even want to have me in. They were like, you haven't got enough experience. And I was like, this is for free in the evenings. Like, I want to do a good job. But I thought this is where you got the experience. Yeah, yeah. But eventually I found a hospital in Winchester who kind of took me on. And from there, it was literally a case of just... Paying your dues, isn't it? Yeah. Paying your dues. I mean, walking the wards when people weren't listening. I mean, if we're being brutally honest, some hospital radio stations they may be listening and, and Winchester's probably got a lot better since I left but when I was there you'd be lucky to get a couple people listening but you know what you assume an audience of one when you're talking on the radio so that kind of worked out because... I assume an audience once I'm doing these podcasts <laughs> well, well I'll tell a bit you what, more than one now but yeah at the start <laughs> I'll listen so that's that's, that's your oh, one you, that's your one so I worked on the radio for a couple of years at hospital radio and then I just kept phone bashing until somebody opened the door and let me in and that turned into commercial which turned into the BBC, radio turned into television, and, you know, here I am, really. When you were being that persistent Percy in Mm. phoning up any person that would have you, how much did that teach you about, A, persistence, and B, patience and resilience, I guess? I think we'll probably come onto it a little bit later in terms of being a journalist and the impact that has on your mental health, but... I think what I always say to students, because a lot of them contact me on LinkedIn and on Twitter, you know, for advice and things like that. And while I'd love to be able to give them all jobs, I, I really can't because I struggle to get work myself these yeah, days. Yeah. But ultimately, my main bit of advice is always about not taking notes personally. Mm. And that's it's hard as a young person, though. It's so easy to say, it's such, so much easier said than done, isn't it? Yeah. It's super hard because, especially if you've worked, you know, through education your whole life, you go to university and then you come out and you think, you know what, I'm ready. I'm ready to be employed. I feel employable. I've smashed my exams, whatever it may be. And then you're getting told no. And you're like, it's probably the first kind of no's you've ever heard in your life. And for me, a no from a job is the second most personal kind of rejection you can have after a relationship. No. I was going to say, I've had, I had a lot of no's before that with girls. So. <laughs> yeah, that, a girl is a hard one, but a job is equally as hard in many ways because it feels like a rejection of you. Yes. Like on your CV, you are laying yourself out there and you're saying, look, here's me. And they're saying no to you. And all I would say is you never know what's going on behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, if someone's already got lined up, you know, all that somebody sort of stuff, may yeah. be in, in the picture for it as well. So it taught me in those early stages that, wow, if I'm going to really make a go of this, I need to be okay with the word no. And, and having a big net and casting Of course. <laughs> I was, what would I have been? I would have been in my early 20s and I was living in Southampton. But at that point, even then, on that first rung of the ladder, I was willing to go anywhere, work for any money, do some work for free if needs be, and really, really just do whatever it took. And I remember calling a guy called Stuart Dennis who's now you know a good friend of mine um he still works in the sector and I must have called this guy after sending a demo tape that I'd cut from hospital radio he worked in commercial I must have called him like every week for like four months and every That's time on stalking I, I, I got to the point where I was starting to feel bad for him like that I was calling and I called one time and the frustration in his voice was just so apparent and he just basically said just come in tomorrow and I was like oh awesome so I went in in the next day and I I did a practice production shift and from there like that's kind of really how it started I mean that was a commercial radio at a time when commercial radio really was struggling and actually in about six months time 
that station folded and I wow. only found out when I turned up for work and there was a security guard chaining up the door saying, sorry, this this is done and dusted. So then I was back out again. It's like when Bart's factory gets shut down when Millhouse is a security guard. <laughs> I mean, it was gutting because I thought when you feel you're on a ladder, you assume that ladder is just going to keep taking you up. It's never ending. And for it to kind of stop so early meant that I had to then try again and, mm. and, and I did and I kept trying but I kept being told no as well. When you were juggling both events and journalism there was a big moment when one of the events you were doing was covered by BBC mm. local radio so channeling your persistent Percy again you introduce yourself and put yourself in front of their editor so at that point did you call yourself a journalist or still not? <laughs> I still like definitely not then and now it's debatable but definitely not then but I remember when I was working for the commercial station, as you say, I was juggling it with work and I wasn't getting paid for the radio stuff. I was doing it purely for free. A little bit later, I did get paid like once a week on a, on a Saturday, but I was doing it for free. And then, as I say, it all stopped and I was working back at the events management. I was like, what do I do now? And one of the events I was organising was a mast climb which is basically the charity I was working for at the time was a charity which operated two tall ships, like think Pirates of the Caribbean style. And they were for people with all abilities. So they were specially modified to allow people to to climb and pull pull in the ropes. And That is a niche charity if I've ever heard it. It was niche, but you know what? It was phenomenal. And, oh, okay. and a lot of the world we live in isn't really properly designed even now in 2023 for people with you know disabilities and this charity took people out to sea and enabled them to feel as equal with other crew members but this particular event was me raising money for the charity and allowing people who'd never been on a tall ship to climb this mast like which was I mean it was tall I'll give you a figure now it'd probably be completely wrong but it was a super super tall mast and the local radio station came down and covered it. And I thought, I'm not letting this guy leave. I'm not letting this guy leave without getting his card. And I was so flustered that the guy was like, okay, I've got to go now. I was like, I was like, Chris, Chris, can I have your card? Chris. And he was like, my name's Neil. And I'm like, (laughs) like, you know, when you just want to, you know, when you just want to nail a first impression. And I was like, well, that, that's terrible. But he gave me his card. His name was Neil Sackley. I'm basically shouting out the people who helped me because... I love that, man. There's only a few people in my whole career who I can say have helped me. And he was one of them. Stuart Dennis, Neil Sackley were the two up to this part in the journey, really. And again, I called him, I emailed him. And he put me in front of the editor, just a, a casual chat. And that was kind of my way into the BBC back in, it would have been like 2009. I worked wow. initially on the sports show. And again, I was juggling it with events management. And then I just thought, I'm going to quit. I'm going to quit events management. What made you have that thought? And what made you take the leap? Was there a particular moment where it just crystallized? Or did you just think, if I'm not going to do it now, I won't ever do it? I think I was still living at home. I think I was well aware well, that, yeah, <laughs> I was well aware that financially I wasn't going to be in a better position again to take that leap but also because the stress of the events management was too much mm. in it and it kind of went very much against my kind of mentality of you have to do a job you love mm. i'd leave journalism if i stopped loving it Fair. i'd leave it i'd leave in a heartbeat i would have to think very very long and hard about the financial implications but if i stopped enjoying it mm. properly stopped enjoying it, i don't mean like go through a period of like a week or like two weeks or a month where you think this is a bit rough because you know life has ups and downs but if i stopped loving it i'd leave 
continuing this journalism dream made you move to different parts of the country, so Sussex, Hereford, Worcester. Do people outside the industry forget this reality, which is not easy to do if you have roots in your hometown, which is that a lot of journalists simply have to leave to be able to succeed? The way I explain it to to students when they kind of come to me and they ask how to get into the industry, and I always caveat this with, I know it's not possible for everyone to do what I did, but the chance of getting in now is so small, you have to play the numbers game. Mm. And by that, I mean you have to apply to, let's say, 10 places, maybe just to get one callback. I'm not even talking about an interview, I'm talking about just a callback. So if you use that as kind of your 10% rule, to get the odds in your favour and play that numbers game a bit more... You have to cast the net wide. Cast that net. Geographically. If you're playing the numbers game in one county... You've got less odds than if you're able to play it in the whole country. And if you're playing it just in radio, you've got less odds than if you're playing it across, say, television, online, local papers. So when you're first starting out, I always say if you can, if you're able to, you do have to be willing to do, kind of do anything in the sector to start with, but also do it anywhere. And I still feel that way about myself, like trying to progress, trying to keep going. If it was the right move for me, I can be a little bit more picky now about kind of what I take because you're on the telly. You've got the you've well, got the track record. <laughs> I've, I've got a little show reel now, and I've got um, you know some great companies on my CV that I've been lucky enough to work for. So I think once you get to that point in your career, you should be a little bit more picky about well, is this next step going to benefit me? Is it going to get me to where I want to go? But when you're first starting, you do genuinely have to do anything Mm. and as I say for two years I worked for free for hospital radio walking the wards taking song requests there was one guy I remember vividly and we were coming up to like Christmas day and he was quite poorly on the ward and I went up to see him and he was really down and that's not unusual for people in hospitals and and you know, my job was to either make them happy there and then or to try and play them a song. To You're a clown, basically. <laughs> I was trying to... I was trying You're a radio to, clown. <laughs> I was trying to cheer these people up at times when they were they were struggling. And he said to me, yeah, I, I, I don't really... I don't really want a song. Thanks, mate, because, you know, I'm not feeling too good. And I was like, well, Christmas is on the way. And he said to me, yeah, I'll be, I'll be dead by then. Oof. And I was like, right. Um, that story when I think back to it it makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up but you know what it was it was a slice of life and it's heartbreaking that that guy didn't see Christmas but the thing that you got in the hospital which I think I learned even more than possibly the skills they taught me Mm. about the radio desk or playing music or presenting was empathy Mm. for people and real life, what people are going through. There were young people in that hospital going through some terrible things and talking to them, hearing their stories. I think that's why I love being a journalist. I was going to say, did that give you A, a really big sense of perspective on your own life and also on other people's to be able to tell the stories when you did journalism? I think being a journalist, I like to think of it more as kind of a storyteller, but as a journalist, you come into people's lives at a very interesting time. Otherwise, you wouldn't be talking to them. There's always some kind of hook, some kind of reason you're talking to them. And sometimes those can be really exciting moments, sometimes a bit shocking. Mm. But more often than not, because of the industry of news, it can be at a time when they're very vulnerable. And I really do take those moments 
really seriously and and when you get to meet somebody who maybe has lost somebody or is going through something and they trust you to tell their story in an engaging way but also accurately and sensitively like that's an honor you said something quite interesting to me off air you said if you're the hardest working person in the room you'll get there eventually so do you think that's defined your career to now and do you think that's still a mantra that applies in journalism when we know you know how many people in, the, in journalism are disproportionately from privately educated backgrounds just all the you know who you know and not what you know all that sort of stuff do you think that still applies today do i think knowing people within the industry helps you get ahead 100 percent. Oh, page one of the media handbook there 100 percent. <laughs> i think it does because i didn't know anybody when i first started mm. and that's why i kind of grabbed this guy when he came on board the tool ship to do the event i was thinking i need to know somebody i don't know anybody and that's why I'd, I'd like to think that my LinkedIn is kind of open in terms of if people come to me, I always respond because I know how many people don't respond. And it's important to say that while people may not be responding to students, like people don't respond to me. Mm. We may get onto COVID later, but I went freelance just before COVID. That's my next topic. So let's go on to that now. <laughs> I must have emailed about 50 different organizations news editors I, I made sure i knew the people i wasn't sending it in to do a generic inbox and what ended up happening was like a bit of a shock to me because like i don't think i'm anything special in terms of like journalism there's a lot of great journalists out there many better than me but i thought what i did have was quite a big body of work behind me and i wasn't even getting a response forget getting an interview forget getting a job i was just emailing these people saying can i come in meet you like grab a coffee I wasn't even getting a reply. So yes, it's all about, you know. That's a humbling experience. (laughs) It is. It is after like. Almost humiliating in a sense. Maybe not humbling. (laughs) 14 years in the industry, I was shocked. I was thinking, wow, like if it's this hard for me, how hard must it be now for, for students coming into this industry, which is shrinking, like jobs are getting lost at the BBC, radio stations, commercial stations around the UK have all been kind of joined up together, Mm. you know, simulcast. And so it's tough to get into this industry so I do think it matters who you know but if you don't know somebody that's not a barrier and that takes me back to being the hardest working person in the room I think Mm. if you are the hardest working person you will get there but I will caveat that with I think in order to have longevity and continuing to be the hardest working person you need to love the job because if you don't if you're just doing it because you think it's I don't know maybe glamorous like you'll get a shock but if you thought that and you don't love it your motivation will soon be sucked out of you when you keep getting those no's. And given the fact that you said that you went freelance just before a global pandemic that hadn't happened in the last, well, at least 80 years, potentially longer, did you start to regret that decision slightly when you're uh, maybe watching Loose Women or the uh, repeat of uh, Taggart? (laughs) I regretted it instantly at the time. I always knew it would come back and work its way out, but at the time, yeah, it was tough. You know, I was going through some stuff in my personal life at the time, which coincided with that time frame, which made it really difficult. But yeah, I, I think I handed in my notice at BBC South, which is a regional BBC outlet, without any kind of problem there. I loved it. I'd spent four years. I just missed out on a promotion there to somebody else who, who deserved that role. And I thought, well, there's nowhere else for me to climb here. Mm. There's no other jobs for me to go for. I've been here four years, so I'm going to quit I'm going to leave my job it was a staff job it was nice and safe it was income every month and I quit worked my three months notice and my three months notice ended 
March the 15th. Like, Jesus. I walked up on the stage. on that, mate. I walked up on stage in March and I picked up the best video journalist in the South Award for the Regional Television Society. And I thought, I'm going to be, I'm going to be all right. You know, I'm going freelance. <laughs> I'm going to be all right. And I remember going up to collect my award and they were like, oh, are we shaking hands? And everyone was kind of like giggling about it a little bit because we didn't know whether we were shaking hands or not because COVID or the thought of COVID was just about coming into the news agenda. It was still in China and just in China at that point, wasn't it? It was, we were aware of it, but nobody really knew how to act at that point. So I picked up my awards and I remember that month I had a meeting planned for Sky. I had a meeting planned for other parts of the BBC. I had a meeting planned at ITV. And within a week, all those meetings were cancelled. And that was it. And that was it. And for the next six months, I'm not sure I had more shifts than I can count on one hand. How much financial anxiety did you feel during that period? Well, I had savings, which were a godsend. But yeah, massively. And the reason being because my savings were dwindling, but I didn't know, like, anyone else in the world at that point how long this was going to go on for there was no vaccine there was no there was no end goal in sight was there there was nothing and then it got progressively worse in terms of lockdowns and other industries were struggling and there was that knock-on effect because obviously people who are say musicians were struggling because they closed all the pubs and the bars and so there was this whole lack of awareness about where this was going to take us next all i knew at that point was Not only was I not making money, but nobody was returning my calls. And it wasn't even at that point that they didn't want to know me. It was that they were saying, look, right now, we aren't having anybody new in for safety reasons. So, yeah, I spent a good six months with nothing. Mm. I've spoken to quite a few men about the mental health impact of being unemployed, which essentially you kind of were because you weren't getting those calls. And I've been unemployed three times in my life in the start of my comms career in my full-time job and a lot of things that come up time and time again you know emasculation the feeling of worthlessness or lack of purpose so did you feel some of that and also was there a I don't know maybe a slight silver lining in the sense that you weren't seeing anybody so therefore you didn't have to have those same conversations of yep yeah, it's going all right yeah job search yep yeah, I'm sending a few emails yep yeah, I might have had an interview here and there yep yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've been unemployed a number of times. I've signed on to Job Seekers Allowance in the past. You know, I've gone through periods where I haven't had work and I couldn't find work, you know, mainly just straight after university. Mm. And yeah, it was tough. It was mentally tough for all the reasons you just said, because I think we put a lot of our self-worth into our job, a lot of people and our professions. Men especially, yeah. Men seem to. Mm. And I felt that before, but... On this instance, or in this instance with regards to leaving my role at BBC South, I didn't really feel any of those feelings because I'd chosen to leave and it was a global pandemic. So at no point did I think, oh, this is my fault. Like, mm. I shouldn't have done this. Or well, That's a good thing, at least. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't actually feel like it was because of me. I just thought, well, look, the world's literally shut down. So it was the first time I think I was unemployed and didn't take it personally. But did you still think, why me, in the sense of, I've just done this and a global unprecedented pandemic has happened, just to time it with? I thought to myself, Matt, if you tried, you couldn't have picked a worse time to leave your job. Like, you literally couldn't have You're picked not, a worse time. You weren't wrong. <laughs> like, and also, because I'd just gone freelance, I didn't get any of the government help. No. I was literally on my own, right? So, yeah, I did think that, but I always in my heart knew... It would end eventually. And as soon as it ended, I would be front of the queue to just 
grab whatever came my mm. way. So I knew it wouldn't be forever. And I knew that decision, while maybe I made slightly prematurely, would be the right one. I just knew it would take time. When it comes to getting those shifts again, we met during the third wave of COVID. So when you came to my old work, Bart's Health, you came to the Hospital Royal London to do a piece for BBC London. And I remember this vividly because it was also the time when Will Smith slapped Chris Rock at the Oscars and I was talking about it with your cameraman. So was this period where you were beginning to find your feet again? I think what happened was the first year 2020 from March onwards was an absolute write-off. I think I did actually pick up three to four months of contract work, like thank goodness, working as a producer on the BBC 6 and 10 o'clock news, which is actually looking back a really, really nice gig to do. (laughs) It was a big deal. Like, and... I am so grateful for that because not only was it financially a massive way off my mind, but also I learned so much. But if I'm brutally honest, I would have never applied for that job had it not been for my circumstances because I didn't want to be a producer. I was a reporter. Funny how these things work out, eh? It's funny how it works out. So I'm super grateful for that. And I learned loads from that. And then really 2021 continued to pick up as lockdown measures eased and I was lucky enough to do a lot for BBC Breakfast. I started working a little bit for my old place BBC South as a freelancer because as I say it was all good with them there was no bridges burnt and I also did a little bit for BBC Nationally so I started working on more desks and I did a bit for ITN and then yeah when I met you I'd started working a, a fair bit more for BBC London who are a really nice team. So Shout out Carl Mercer if he's listening. Always always love my calls with Carl. Carl, yeah, he's he's one of the great guys at at London. And um, whole great team there, mate. They're lovely. I ever ever dealt with a boost. Yeah, it's great. They're really nice. And and I think that is great when you're a freelancer because you, you don't really belong to any one team. So when you go back into an office environment and the people there are lovely, you know, it makes you feel like you are still part of a team, even though you kind of don't really belong to Mm. anyone officially. So yeah, when I met you, I feel like, I'd got through kind of 2020, I'd survived. I'd started picking up more and more work through the end of 2021. And by the time I met you, I was probably, without knowing the numbers, in the same or at least a little bit better financial position than when I first quit my job in 2019. So it had taken a good two and a half years to get back to where I was. Mm. But it was still the right decision. I want to talk about industry issues now, mate. And the first that you wanted to discuss is competition and the sometimes brutality of the journalism industry. So tell me how this has affected your mental health and your perspective on it. Wow. I mean, I think for me, I became aware at a really young age that I had mental health issues in terms of things I needed to look out for. I'm sure we'll come on to it, but... You know, I was only 16, 17 when I first got diagnosed with depression. And the first time you get depressed, oh, wow. Like the first time feeling any emotion is hard, but not knowing how long it's going to last for is tough. Like COVID. (laughs) Like COVID. You're in this dark world and you never know you don't even know if you're going to be able to get through it because it's the first time, you know, there's a easy to make the assumption that you may never get through it because your head's in such a dark place. So I knew from an early age, you know, 16 years old, for at least a couple of years, that I had problems with my mental health that I needed to work through and live with. And, you know, we'll come on to that, I'm sure. But when you take those into a competitive working environment, 
where you do feel like you're being very much judged on yourself. It's a very front-facing industry. You know, when you see journalists, reporters talking on the television and delivering stories, they're doing it in their own way, in their own style, with their own voice, with their own face. When you do get knockbacks, whether that's on social media or you don't get picked up for a job by your bosses, like you take that personally, of course you do. And so I've had to know going into this industry that I've got to be so kind to myself like every day and that's tough because you don't always make time for yourself so no the competition is brutal and every time I tell a student you know you've got to be okay with hearing no if I'm honest I'm reminding myself because they do always hurt and when you do know that you are susceptible to mental health problems in terms of you know your sense of self-worth or your mindset having the ability to go downhill quickly under the right set of circumstances then you have to be so aware you said something quite funny but also quite powerful to me off air you said it's basically like the hunger games every day <laughs> unpack that for me well it's probably not as literal as that <laughs> i hope not anyway yeah i mean spoiler alert if you haven't seen the hunger games but people regularly die on the show but yeah basically for me in some jobs, and maybe I'm wrong because I don't, maybe I don't have the expertise to speak about a lot of different industries having not worked properly in them, but I feel like in some jobs you can probably get into them and then coast for a good few months or years if your life outside of work is prioritised. But when you're a freelancer and you're working for organisations that are shrinking or you know are letting people go, you do feel like every single day you have to bring your A game because especially on some stories I feel like I'm only ever one legal mistake or one sensitive on air one lack of allegedly <laughs> one lack of one lack of allegedly one mixing up my guilties and my not guilties away from not being employed again and while you've got that from the kind of journalistic point of view I also feel that way very much so on the kind of personality point of view like you can put one person into a room of different people and because of the mix of personalities, you'll get on with certain people better than others. But when you're a freelancer and you're being dropped into a, a new team, you know, every couple of weeks, you've kind of got to be liked. You've got to be really positive. You've got to be proactive. You've got to be the guy that they want to work with. So you keep getting booked again. And sometimes you just don't feel like that. Sometimes your head is not in that God, place. Every day is Omaha Beach landings, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's difficult. It's difficult. So every single time you know, you go into that competitive industry, you just feel like you've got to be the best you can be, even if you're honestly not feeling that way. There's a Laurel Carner album that I love. It's his second album, which is called Not Waving But Drowning. Is that how sometimes being in, in the industry feels like you're presenting masks? It's positive, it's effervescent, it's vibrant, but underneath a lot of you, in fact, probably most of you are just fighting for survival and staying afloat. I think from a personal point of view, you should definitely never assume that whether people are presenting themselves a certain way on the television or maybe on radio or even social media channels, that their life is okay. I mean, I think that's a lesson for life for everybody, not just kind of journalists. But yeah, it can be very, very tough. And would I say waving, not drowning? <laughs> I mean, possibly not, but I think you are constantly aware. And I, I use this more as a freelancer. You are constantly aware of the competition around you. And that isn't just when you're at work like that includes social media like I 
have a love-hate relationship with social media. Same. I if love... I didn't have vent, I wouldn't be on it, mate. If I didn't have to find podcast guests, I wouldn't be on it. <laughs> I love the potential it has, but I also hate what it can bring out of people. And I don't just mean keyboard warriors because, mm. you know, you get idiots in all walks of life. I actually mean like the emotions that it can bring out in yourself. And I feel pressure if, let's say I've had like a week off, like, you know, we're all allowed a week off. We're talking about mental health. So we're allowed a week off. But if I haven't posted something about work in that week off, I'll feel like, oh, am I, am I still relevant? Am I still, am I still going to be remembered? Are people still going to employ me? And I start getting all these like really nervous thoughts. And then you scroll onto your timeline and you see other people posting stuff and like, oh my God, they're doing loads. I'm doing nothing. And so, yeah, for that reason, it can be super tough. You want to try and stay relevant all the time. And, and the reality is everybody else is out there fighting their own battles exactly, too. Exactly, mate, yeah. It's hard to remember that sometimes though, I do, I do understand. The next issue I want to talk about is the news cycle. And this is something that I spoke about with friend of the pod, Christian Hugo. I'm sure you're aware of him. He used to work at the Beep. He's now a freelancer. And the impact of the news cycle specifically on journalists like yourself's mental health. How has that affected you? I do know Christian Hugo. I don't know him personally, but I think he's doing a Formula One podcast he's done, now. Big, big stuff now. Big so, stuff as um, I messaged him. Yeah, see, Christian, I saw you. I saw your tweets and you're making me feel... Uh, <laughs> I'm sending this pod. <laughs> you're making me feel bad about myself already. <sighs> Stop posting, man. No, I mean, look, he, I think he was at Radio 1, I believe. Yes, uh, yeah, yeah. I only know through socials and I think he's now doing freelance work. And it's so refreshing to see that people can go freelance because he would have had the same concerns and worries I Literally did. Literally said it on this pod, yeah. Like he yeah. would have been really worried. Mm. So when you see somebody making it and I'm sure in his mind he isn't making it he's probably still there thinking oh okay I'm doing this one podcast but what about this and x mm. y and z so you know it can all be a bit misleading social media but either way yeah well done to him for doing that but with regards to the news cycle specifically as I alluded to a little bit earlier what happens in news is you tend to come into people's life at points of vulnerability the news can be quite depressing and when you're filming with somebody or you're editing their story you're constantly for like maybe about four or five hours watching, listening to, replaying little poignant, hard hitting clips from their interview. And you'd be crazy to think like that doesn't sink into your consciousness when you go home of an evening. And if you extrapolate that over weeks and months, then that has an impact. And I remember when I was deployed to the Shoreham air crash on the south coast, which was the... Oh, God, of the air show. Yeah, it was the oh air show. Yeah, so it was, was uh, it was a jet, which, for people who don't know this story, it came down on a line of waiting traffic. And I believe, believe it killed 11 men. Uh, forgive me if those numbers are wrong, but I think that's correct. So I was deployed there and I had to do radio, live radio, back to back for hours on end and what that basically entailed was I would be stood on location and then different regional radio stations around the country would all take a time slot of my hour so pulled basically yeah, yeah. it was a so for instance Radio Manchester might come to me 12 to 12.05 and then they would disconnect and then BBC Solent might come to me between five past and ten past so for the whole clock you were basically saying the same the story same thing, yeah to a different audience but you do that for two three hours and you say those words and and you have to make it sound original as if you're saying them for the first time as well you relay the emotion to all these people and then you come off air and you feel so sad Mm. just 
the most sadness in running through your bones. You know, maybe some people are kind of got tougher skin than, than I have. And maybe, you know, some journalists kind of disassociate more than I, I can. But when I feel myself having done a run of sad stories, yeah, I feel like I need a spa day or something because this is too much. Mm. You mentioned disassociating there. And you said that one tool that you've used to sort of combat this issue is that you actually disassociate from yourself when you're reporting so mm. you don't see yourself as the journalist when you are the journalist mm. but it's someone else entirely just explain that for me yeah i try to do that more I, I think i've got better at it because is that a good thing by the way i think it's a coping strategy i don't think it solves all the problems i think ultimately you will have to get to a point where you still have to offload somewhere or somehow but i remember i was doing an interview in Guildford Cathedral for, I think it must have been for BBC South. It was a service for the two helicopter pilots who died as part of the crash in which the Leicester chairman or the Leicester owner passed away in the helicopter crash. And I'd had a really, really tough week. I mean, clearly not as tough as these poor families, but I was having a tough week. And I got there and I was interviewing the family of the deceased. And... I was asking the questions and they were giving me some really emotional answers. And I, behind the lens, I was going, I was, you know, I was tearing up. I was pretty much crying, to be fair. And while I think my empathy may have touched them as well, because I clearly cared as a human being, as a, as a journalist, as a professional, I felt like I, I wasn't doing a very good job. So from that moment on, I definitely do try and disassociate myself. And, and by that, I mean, as soon as I pick up the camera or as soon as I pick up a microphone, it's not me that's talking to these people. It, it's it's somebody else. And I'm simply just a vessel. Mm. And, and that way I can just take my emotions, take a step back from my emotions. And then if I have to, I'll deal with them later. Would it be better to say that it's healthy separation then rather than disassociation? <laughs> well, because disassociation could lead to yourself self-splitting. I don't know if it's even healthy separation because I think you can't fully stop it being absorbed by your consciousness. I think it's it's just uh, it's a temporary fix. Mm. So I think it's a way of working that, that now works for me because I think if I absorb it in the moment, it impacts my ability to do my job. We've spoken a lot on this podcast already about instability and how unstable the industry is and how sometimes you felt pretty unstable. Have you got to the point now where you do feel established? And if you don't, do you think you'll ever feel that way? I don't think there's a freelancer in the world who's, <laughs> who's going to say they're established. I think if I got, well, when I next get a staff job within an organisation, let's put it on record right now, I don't want to be freelance. Freelance for me was a, was a way to leave regional news and hopefully make it one day international news. And while and it's I, as if you're listening, slide into the DMs. <laughs> yeah, if, if you're listening. But um, so for me, it was definitely a case of a way to try and get into national media. So established, I don't really know what that means. I think established in terms of I'm bringing in a certain amount of money each month, established in terms of people 
watching kind of know who I am when they turn on the television or somebody who is considered like an expert in his chosen area maybe that's sports or something like that but I definitely don't feel established now Mm. like I feel like I have more experience than I used to but I definitely don't feel established I do occasionally get that kind of imposter syndrome Mm. which I know a lot of people get especially on some of the bigger jobs because you've done quite a lot of them well this year has been quite Especially sport, I should say. Yeah, Quite a bumper year. Obviously, when, you know, the Queen passed away, it was all hands on deck and and all eyes. Defcon 1 at the BBC, as I, as I used to know when I worked in the BBC press office, and there was always the alluding to, if the Queen dies, this is the plan. <laughs> I think a lot of people thought that there'd be a lot more frantic running around when the Queen passed away but i think the reality for most news organizations is they had something in place for a long period of time Mm. because you know she was fortunate enough to live to quite an old age but obviously when the day does come you've still got to get everything right all that rehearsal all that practice means nothing if you don't get it right and i was actually working up in salford for a bbc sports shift and it was one of those kind of four days up in salford where i was like i was in a hotel and away from home and usually on those shifts not much happens (laughs) and I was doing you know live reports about all the kind of sporting events that had been cancelled or postponed because of you know the royal death and that was being shown on kind of BBC One, BBC Two, it was being um, streamed on some American stations as well and so yeah when I picked up my bit of paper and I put my earpiece in and put my mic on like imposter syndrome like (laughs) at its highest I'm like who the hell am I like who am I like sat here you don't start thinking well Matt you know you've been doing this for like 13 years you know it is ultimately just relaying information because the gravitas of the whole experience the situation just kind of rains down on you and you just start looking at yourself in the little mirror that you can see to the side of the camera and you just yeah who the hell am I and as we reflect on your journalism journey mate what has it taught you about yourself in the course of these 13 years I think it has taught me that I am ridiculously sensitive for a stereotypical man (laughs) And I I appreciate that phrase is is terrible because there is no stereotypical man. But let me explain it slightly. When I'm with my friends down in Southampton and, you know, we get together and we might have a few beers, I'll always be the only one in the room. Like, how are you? No, no, but how are you really Mm. doing? Is everything okay? And some of them look at me like, dude, I'm fine. Like, get get around it. But I feel like that's what it's taught me about myself. And I think it's also taught me that even people who it looks like they've got it all together they haven't and I I use that because of all the people that I meet as a journalist all the people whose stories I tell you know from the outside they might look completely like they've got their shit together and then you sit down and you put a camera on and you put a microphone on and you ask them really how they're doing. These are the people that pass you in the street. You share a tube carriage with these people. And you look at them and, you know, their shirts all pressed and their ties looking tight and all the rest of it. And they look like they are on form. And they're not. And I think that's what it's taught me about myself and about life. 
We've talked about Matt, the journalist. I want to dive a bit deeper now and talk about your own mental health journey, mate. So I ask all my special guests on this topic, this question first. Tell me back to early life, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Matt we meet here? Wow. Um, I think if I'm going to start with early years, my life, my upbringing was so privileged and i don't mean financially privileged i'm not saying in any way we weren't well off or you we mean like emotionally privileged almost i mean like nuclear family yeah good I, parents i yeah. just mean i won the lottery on parents and this is going to be a difficult section for me i think because i lost my father last year so when i talk about my family this is going to bring up emotions which I'm working through, but possibly haven't worked all the way through yet. And that's fine, mate. You'll get there. And I think early years was just blessings. I think if anything, and we'll come on to this, my upbringing was so good in terms of the love I received from my parents. I do think that it gave me a slightly false impression of what life would be like in terms of the actual big wide world if that's the only negative it's not bad (laughs) i had this conversation with my with my mum quite a lot and because i'm open about this you know i think if we're going to normalize mental health we talk about it that's the way of achieving that and so i talked to my mum about it and she says oh i should have been tougher on you you know when you were growing up and i'm like mum like you were phenomenal like the best mum I could have ever hoped for. And as you say, if, if my biggest <laughs> my biggest gripe with growing up is that it was too loved, like, you know, that's crazy. And so, yeah, I think growing up was phenomenal. I was so lucky. But then in terms of my earliest experience of mental health would have been, or my own mental health, would have really been kind of when I was 16, you know, turning 17 years old, really. As I say, the world in my head was a really great place where nothing bad really happened and everything I kind of did got validated with words of encouragement or you know satisfaction whether that was achievements at school or work I'd done but then it felt like it came crashing down a little bit when I went to college and you lost that structure of education and you lost that delicate touch from teachers i should probably say because you know as levels and a levels were i feel like they were the hardest period of my educational life they were tough a million miles they Mm. were tough and for me give my age away now but for me as levels it was the first year that they brought them in okay so the year before i'd just done a levels like two years that's what they do now we've gone back to that oh they've gone back it's all the it's all the exams at the end of year 13 now i didn't even know that so yeah my was was the first year and they didn't really know what they were doing so we kind of felt a little bit like guinea pigs in that way but either way college i felt was a bit of a wake-up call of like oh actually no not everything you do is going to be good actually some of it's going to be pretty crap so that was kind of where my head was and obviously you know you're trying to find out who you are as a person in relationship with girls and all the rest of that and it coincided with a couple of really upsetting events for the family and my family obviously were my my safe place and I remember that my mum has a really good friend still a really good friend 
who whose son sadly had had attempted to take his own life and miraculously he'd survived and so she was there for there for her friend and my mum was obviously feeling a lot of the kind of impact of that and as a result the family were too you know I wasn't getting the kind of same love and attention that I had before and couldn't really compute that because I was really struggling at college and I needed my parents there at that point and anyway a couple of weeks after being released from hospital he took his own life and so that further kind of impacted on my mum and then within the same time period a little boy who my mum taught my mum was a teacher he got hit by a bus and my dad was a head teacher and even though this little boy went to my mum's school he got hit by my dad's school and my dad was one of the people who tried to save his life unsuccessfully tragically and I think at that point the family dynamic just just crumbled because my parents were trying to just keep their head above water mentally and my dad's from the north or he was from the north my mum, you know, she doesn't really talk about stuff. So they were both quite stoic with it, mm. which is kind of an old school way, I think, of dealing with your mental health. So they were kind of just trying to get through. But regardless, like the shift in the dynamic within this family was like... Like night and day. It was, mm. it was like night and day. And so I was going through my own stuff without that support network that I'd, I'd always relied upon did you feel like at any point not that you couldn't go to them but you almost didn't want to burden them with your own issues because you knew how much they were going through a hundred percent yeah i felt like i can't go to my parents um you might tip them over in your head or i didn't like want that. to add yeah. to their burden yeah, yeah. i didn't want to add to their burden and you know i was like 16 17 years old and i just remember being at university uh, being at college sorry and coming home and being exhausted because every day I would go in and put a mask on and try and be happy, try and be smiley and I wasn't feeling it in my heart and I remember one time I was playing football with my friends after school and I was laughing and stuff but I could hear my laugh in my head, I could hear it and like what, what is this sound? Like you're not, you're it's not like, even It's happy. like the fake podcast laugh that, I, uh, that a lot of podcasts do. <laughs> well, it was just this crazy experience of of literally living a lie emotionally and it was absolutely exhausting and when I kind of heard a little bit more about my mum's friend's son who'd taken his own life I thought to myself like because I saw the impact it had on his mum through their family and I thought oh my goodness like I will say right here and now I wasn't contemplating taking my life I wasn't but I, I felt like if it was an escalator of emotions to get me to that point. Like I was somewhere near the near the bottom of mm. it. And I thought if I carry on this way, it's just going to take me to that place. So I thought to myself, how can I prevent this? And even at like 16 years old, I called up the GP and I said, I need to come and see you. I, up until this point, all my hospital and all my healthcare had been booked by my mum and dad. Yeah, but, yeah. But, but, my and dad. but I went on my own. I got myself there on the bus and I just said, look, I'm really struggling. And he booked me in with a child psychiatrist or psychologist or whatever they were back then. And 
I remember walking into this woman's office and just, she said, <laughs> I can almost feel it now, man. She was like, how are you doing? And I just cried. I cried probably harder than I've ever cried in my life for like 10 minutes. And she prescribed me some medication. Well, you know, she didn't just prescribe me some medication. We did talk about things as well. But Was that helpful? The talking or the meds? The meds. Well, the meds first and then the talking. I mean, talking's always useful, but the meds were an experience. I'm super, <laughs> I'm, I'm super pleased that I went through that because you can learn a lot about empathy with other people who are on, on antidepressants, which I don't think I'm really for or against them. I, I understand their value and their worth, mm-hmm. definitely. But, but they weren't for you, maybe. I think for me... I was on something called I was on a I was on a drug called Cipramil and I was taking them you know every, every day and as I'm sure many people who have been on antidepressants have kind of fallen into this trap of like oh my goodness I feel amazing I don't need these anymore so <laughs> I was on them for a while and then I was like no nah, I don't need these anymore and I came off them and then I plummeted like I was like what are you doing I was in this deep dark well you know I was like oh goodness so I went back on them and then I slowly over time kind of phased them out and I've never since then been back on antidepressants I have had numerous sessions of counseling when I felt myself kind of falling but I've never gone back on antidepressants but I do think when your mind is at a place where it's not working and you just need a little help to get to a point where it can process emotions properly I think medication in that point has been of use to people so was it more of a stopgap for you maybe in getting you to a place where you could manage your emotions without the need of them. That's how it felt like yeah. for me. It felt like I got to a point, I was so low that I could not work out in my head what I was going to do next. How could I process these emotions? And they basically just elevated my mind to a level where, okay, maybe I can do this on my own. Then I carried on having the counseling talking through things and eventually i phased out the, the medication but what it did do this experience is it, it really did help me to be able to realize early the signals in my own mind of when things are going down like before i only really realized i was on the ground level at crisis point yeah. at crisis yeah, point yeah, yeah. that's but, a lot of men unfortunately but now i can feel when oh hang on I'm struggling a little bit here. I'm going down a couple of notches. So that's when I'll book into a counsellor or that's when I'll try and book in some self-care or meditation or reading a book or going for a run. That's when I'll do it. So it, it was one of the darkest points in my life, but I truly believe it's probably saved my life. You spoke about your family dynamic really changing because of the grief that both your parents had witnessed and experienced, especially your dad first hand literally mm. when did that change back or get better i don't think you can ever get it back i think once you realize your parents are humans and so did you de superman your dad at that point then like what kind of what all boys tend to do at some point i think weirdly and we're talking about my dad so this could be tricky but i think weirdly he became more of a superman but he became a human superman do you see what I mean? Mm. I think before you idolise your dad, or I did at least, and people who are lucky enough to have a good relationship with their father, but it's because you think they're kind of, 
indestructible and mm. they can do anything. But actually seeing kind of the human frailties within him and his determination, and this goes for my mum as well, to stick together and overcome the odds and, and be there for each other, actually they became even more superhuman in my mind. The most difficult part we've now come to, mate, is talking about your dad. Mm-hmm. And your dad died on the 19th of February, 2022. So we've talked a little bit about how you've made him more of a Superman in, in a sense. But just tell me a bit more about the man he was and your relationship with him. I mean, he was my best friend. Like, there's no two ways around that. You never know how much it's going to impact you until it happens. Like, you... I always try and proactively prepare myself for emotions and think, oh, well, you know, let's try and imagine a world where I haven't got my dad and maybe I can get myself ready. Because he he was struggling with a condition for a number of years. So I knew it was, I knew the likelihood of it coming was probable. So I tried to put that in my mind and it, and it just, it did nothing to prepare me for the reality. He was a head teacher he was full of compassion, full of empathy. He guided so many young people to become the best versions of themselves. And he did that as a father for me as well. And we watched football together. Big Southampton fans? <laughs> Big Southampton fans. Sorry, mate. It's always been that up. In a, in a, yeah. <laughs> it's always been that relegation in a difficult time. <laughs> yeah, less big at the moment. But no, we watched the football together. But more than that, like... We just had a dynamic and a relationship where we could talk about anything without judgment. And and I'm about to be a father myself. Congratulations. Thank you. And I think if there's one thing I want my daughter to know, she will grow up in a world with me passing no judgment on her. The only thing I want from my little girl is to develop a kindness for strangers. If she's kind in this world, I don't care what else she does she will never be judged by me. And I like to think that that's a lesson my dad taught me. Are there any favourite sayings, ad-libs, mantras that he imparted that perhaps came from his head teaching background that you carry with you now? (laughs) I mean, the amount of times as a child I used to go into his school and the kids would be laughing about something that I'd done. And I'd be like, how do they know about this stuff? Because he told them in an assembly. <laughs> my, my life became an assembly. Like, there was one time when I was going to bed. I must have been like, who knows, six, seven. Maybe I was like probably 18. But I was wearing like some, some like grey pyjamas and I'd been colouring in the bed and I'd left a brown felt tip pen. And you know when you touch something kind of with a felt tip and it would just spread. Mm-hmm. It would just spread like if you put a little drop of water on a paper towel it spreads i'd slept on this belt tip right and so i go into the school and everyone's like ah brown pajamas and i'm like what are you talking about so that was kind of how my dad was in terms of as a head teacher like i basically provided the best content for his assemblies but as a father i remember saying to him you know and i said this to him like in his last few weeks you know when we couldn't even get to see the guy because because of covid even in 2022 because his immune system was so low we were talking on voice calls and stuff and he knew i was going through ivf um to get my little girl and i just said to him i just want to be like half the dad that you were 
and he said he said don't ever be a second rate version of me just be the best version of you and I guess like mantras and sayings maybe maybe that's probably the most pertinent one that stuck with me now considering the journey that I'm about to do as a dad When he was diagnosed, how did you feel then? I think my mum tried to shield us from it all. I mean, it was it was ultimately a blood cancer, but the, the C word was never mm. used. I think even in my 30s, and my sister also in her 30s, they still perform that role of protective parents so well, almost too well because I felt like knowing may have been a little bit more useful but eventually you can only have so many hospital visits before you know we know we knew the truth I wouldn't say I knew the severity when it got diagnosed but I think as soon as the reality hit home it became very much a case of we need to make memories here I was going to say is that is, is that something you consciously did to spend as much time as possible it is, but what I will say is my dad's passed on now, but I have no regrets. That doesn't just apply to the period of time in which he was diagnosed. The whole of his life, we made time for each other. We spoke about everything. We laughed, we joked, we made memories. So even though I was a lot more aware of that how it had to happen in his last few years that was already happening and for that like I'm I'm forever grateful part of the cancer that didn't affect your dad was his cognitive faculty so he still had that right up until his death if I'm right in saying did that almost make it harder because you could see the physical decline but the mental decline wasn't there so he was fully aware of it yeah I think you always have that question don't you in your mind is there a better way to lose somebody instantly or you know over a period of time I I lost my auntie to cancer as well and she was a very strong healthy woman and she was in her early 70s which isn't really you know an old age nowadays especially not for the amount of activity she did and and she had a cancer which sadly saw her lose a lot of weight and really deteriorate massively my dad was you know six three you know big guy strong and he did, as you say, have all of his, you know, cognitive abilities right up until the very last moment. And, you know, the night before we were all sat around his bed and we were joking and laughing. And it was almost like, why are we in a hospital setting right now? Why are you hooked up to wires? Like when you seem so normal. Almost. I think it was a confusing thing to see happening. But I think if you ask me, what I would prefer, I think the way it happened is the way I would prefer because you don't want to feel like somebody lost their ability to relate or that they lost their physical abilities mm. through, you know, through all their cancer. memories, you know, I think all their memories. I was speaking know. to a, a guest about her dad, her granddad, sorry, being lost to Alzheimer's and this feeling of grieving them before they've even died because you are grieving for the memories they've lost and you're grieving for 
them not recognizing you and all that sort of stuff so yeah I, I completely understand it that's horrible and it is like choosing what kind of bullet you want but if you had to pick one it would be having him right until the end I'm sure what was your grieving process like afterwards I think a lot of people don't properly grieve until after the funeral from people I've spoken to and that was definitely true for me I think also what I didn't ever foresee about the bereavement and the loss of my father was actually the impact it would have on the family dynamic so again like we discussed earlier yeah I am lucky enough where I've got you know a lovely mum and a lovely sister and I go and see them regularly and even though the three of us sit around that dynamic has gone and so I don't think I realised how much I was going to miss that. But my grieving process was protect them at all costs up until the funeral. So I did the majority of the funeral organising myself that I could do. So I kept super busy. I did all of the kind of admin side of telling the government that he passed away and informing people and things like that. Quite a stereotypically masculine thing to do, mate. I think, honest. weirdly, I had to step up. Mm. I probably didn't have to step up because my mum is more than capable and my sister felt that in my heart I felt Mm. like I had to step up and so I did and then after the funeral I started running like I just started running like I know that sounds like Forrest Gump but in a good way you weren't running away you were running running to channel it I was just running for my mental health I was just running to get some headspace and the grieving just kind of came out bit by bit and I I went back to counselling as I say like because of the experience I had in my younger years, I knew I would need that. I actually went to counselling before he passed away to try and ready myself for that. And I remember sat in the council and I said, can you like give me some skills or some tips or (laughs) something? And she was like, I'm really sorry, but like there's literally nothing I can do. You're just going to have to like wait for it to happen basically and then come back. And even then she said, don't come back immediately. Come back in like a couple of months or something Mm. once you processed it. And all the counsellors I spoke to said the same come back after a few weeks or months because you need that time for your mind to process it so yeah the grieving process was death shock admin stuff to the funeral and then literally do whatever you can for the listeners you ran the london marathon Mm. as part of your grieving process i think and as a personal achievement for yourself so was the funeral closure or was finishing the london marathon closure I don't know if I've got closure yet, but I really don't. I feel like every day I try and achieve something for him. I think being a father myself will be for him. Um, nothing can prepare you for that either. <laughs> nothing can prepare me for that. I think the London Marathon was a nice one because I ran for a charity called Winston's Wish who looks after and supports children who have been bereaved at an early age and I had my dad for 37 years so I don't in any way think I fall into that category but I just thought to myself how hard it's been for me look good for 37 by the way mate thanks (laughs) mum thanks I I thought to myself how hard it it was for me like if I was a young child and I lost uh, a parent or a sibling that would be I mean I can't even imagine so I raised money for them to continue their great work but in terms of closure I don't know if I will ever get closure, I will just keep trying to do things that I know would make him proud. How has grief changed your perspective or appreciation of time? Um, I mean, 
I think I've always had a very strong sense of awareness of mortality, even when I was super young. I think I weirdly got that from my dad. I think we both have quite a, quite a zest for life and we, we enjoy every day. And so I'm very, very conscious of time, very conscious and about making memories and things like that. So in terms of an appreciation, I think that that was already there. But now I've lost my dad, what I do think it is, is provided me with, which I'm grateful for, and I'm trying to get positives out of negatives, is that because I was one of the first one in my friendship group, and my friendship group is primarily people I went to school with who are of a similar age, I'm one of the first in my friendship group who have lost their father, or, or any parent. And I think what it will do is help me and better equip me emotionally to help other people because it will happen. It will happen to everybody and it will happen to them. And when it does, I'll feel like I can help them more. So I think that's a positive. For the marathon itself, just take me back to the day and the training. Well, especially the day, but just your feelings, how you felt when you crossed the line. Did you think he was watching at you at that point? You know, turn back to that day itself because I imagine that was really emotional. The training was purely just long runs pain <laughs> of pain and runners will have an appreciation of this but there is a point in a run not all runs but some runs when your body and your mind just sync up so much that you kind of lose yourself and it's so nice because your mind at that point is it's kind of empty and focused all at the same time and you can't get that kind of tranquility normally and in some of my longer runs, I would hit that point and I would just start crying. I would literally be running through fields, just bawling. Because of that, it was almost like I was processing emotions at like double speed during those windows. But then the day itself, you know, it was October. It was the last time the London Marathon was held slightly later because it had been pushed back through COVID. You know, it's an incredible environment. Like, everybody's there for their own reasons. Like, for yeah. me... Yeah, my older sister did it. And uh, I remember being at the... Like, we went to various points. Like, we went to Canary Wharf and stuff. And, you know, I'm quite an encouraging person anyway. You, you get dragged in. You see someone in the name. You're like, yeah, go on, Steve. Keep going, mate. Stop walking. Come on, you can do it. Not far to go. Yeah, everybody... Just shouting at strangers. I'm like, what am I doing? <laughs> everybody gets wrapped up in this really positive buzz. And it's it's so lovely. And... For me, I also have my name on my top, so... Deliberate it, choice. <laughs> well, it was it was the a top for Winston's Wish, the charity. But on my hand, I wrote my dad's name on my hand. On was both. it a brown felt tip? It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't on brown felt tip. It was in a permanent marker, thankfully, uh, which didn't spread all over my arms. But I just put my dad's name on both my hands and I started the run with a friend. And he saw me writing on my arms and he's like, are you putting your split times down? And Little was, did he know. And I was like, no, mate, I'm just writing my dad's name. And then when things got tough at around mile 20, I just looked at my... The wall, basically. That's the, the wall, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I ran it pretty chilled. It wasn't it wasn't like the fastest run in the world. I came in about 3.45, which was okay. But things got tough and I just looked at my hands. That's why I was doing it. Mm. Let's reflect on your mental health journey now, mate. So first of all, if your dad was listening to this podcast, what do you think you would say to him and what do you think he'd say to you? I think if he was listening to this, he would say congratulations on becoming a father. He would say, again, 
thank you for you know the kind words about me but just make sure you're being the best version of yourself because really like I think what is my job now as a parent and it, it is to just equip my baby daughter with the skills to get her through life in the best way I can you know none of us get instructions for this and I think that's what he did for me he would always just offer me encouragement and that's what he'd be doing now he'd be like just keep going you're doing really well there was nothing I have to say to my dad that I didn't get a chance to say while he was here that's the best that's what you want isn't it I would just say the same thing I said on his last day which is thank you mm. in the course of this grieving process as well obviously you've said how much it's given you perspective and renewed focus on who you want to be as a dad do you also feel a more profound sense of just how important it is for boys to have dads and strong dads when I say strong I mean present there for them supportive it's a big problem right now I think a father figure in a household is super important I mean it I don't think it necessarily has to be a father or a mother you know two mothers two fathers whatever the makeup is right now you just need two supportive parents because each will bring their own skill set their own abilities but you just need that presence that ever presence in your life because um, the boys don't get it will find it somewhere else and sometimes it's the wrong places and yeah while it's important for guys and girls there is definitely something about men which as we grow we seem to adopt this kind of super masculine persona which with it seems to come this feeling that talking is a weakness and showing weakness is a weakness and it's really not I don't know where we get that from I I don't think I've ever had it to the same degree as some of my friends and maybe that's you know thanks to my parents but I try and work out where it comes from because every relationship I've ever been in everybody likes something different in their partner but all the partners I've ever had in my life have always quite enjoyed the fact that I was quite open and talking about stuff they would always compliment me saying I'm really pleased I'm with a guy who can actually share his feelings so we're probably not doing it for the women so I don't know what do you think like why are we doing this I've got a few thoughts on this over the course of doing this podcast so I think that we've come a long way since 2017 since I started doing this I think the environment of men judging other men has I think has largely gone I think there's still remnants of it but I think in the hyper masculine environments of school I think schools are a lot better now I actually think schools are kind of swinging the pendulum too far the other way I think there's almost too much exposure to mental health content I think in relationships certainly what you've said is true but I do think that there is a fear amongst men in dating about being judged for their mental health by women how true that is I don't know or how imagined that is per se and I think there is a lack of understanding in that some men just won't find talking helpful, but they will find seeing other men talking helpful. So for me and you, therapy was really good for us. Therapy changed my life, saved my life in many ways. I never thought that medication would be helpful for me, but I'm always very supportive of people who want to do medication or take medication uh, if it works for them. And I think there has been a a lack of understanding in putting out this sort of one-size-fits-all approach to men's mental health. And I think if we change that and we say that me and you will be helped, 
but Tommy won't be, but James will be, and Dave will see Tommy or James talking about it, but then he might think, oh, I'm going to play football and that will help me. I think that is a much better approach to it. I think I think some of it was conditioned in history and those hyper-masculine environments where we, were, we felt pressured to put on that mask, but I think those environments have changed massively and I think we now need to move with that. That's a long-winded way of saying it, but it's a nuanced answer. There you go. I told you you wouldn't get through this whole podcast without me asking you a question. <laughs> it's the journalist in me. <laughs> and as a final couple of questions, what has this mental health journey taught you about yourself? This in terms of the podcast or? What, everything up to now. I think when you sit down and you properly focus on your mental health for a, a long period of time, rather than just going through life and thinking it's just kind of there, we never really think about it. We're just like, oh, some days I'm feeling a little bit sad. Some days I'm feeling a bit happy. But you never stop and re- really like analyze it. And I think when you do, it's quite a humbling experience because you actually realize that when we talk about physical health and we talk about gaining weight or losing weight or the remedies that you will do to try and change things like going to the gym or whatever we just don't seem to do that with our mental health and I think for me sitting there analyzing it being humbled by my mental health and the power it has over the rest of my life you know my fitness has a massive roll over my well-being and my mental well-being and that's why I run so much nowadays but actually my mental health I would say has more of a control over how I feel on a daily basis and so I guess what I've learned is that I can have a lot more control over that than I ever thought possible but in the same way as exercising and dieting or whatever it is you're trying to achieve you have to put the work in you can't just go through life thinking things are going to get better without changing anything and whether that's reading meditating eating better going outside being in the country seeing your friends whatever it is we all know what the answers are but we actually have to do them and so I think for me my mental health journey has really taught me that I do have in the same way as my fitness control over my well-being through mental health I just have to action it and take responsibility for it and ownership 100%. that's why I say on this podcast a lot own your shit own, own your it. shit And as a final question, if you could go back and talk to the Matt who was seeing his parents struggle to deal with those shocking moments of grief, the Matt who was working as a dog walker or packing boxes in a factory to make ends meet while struggling to fund and find his journalism journey, or the Matt in the grips of the grief for his dad, what would you say to him knowing what you do now? I think I would say similar to to what I, I mentioned about my own abilities to to change things. I would say if you're struggling, you do have the power to change things yourself. But alternatively, there's no weakness in reaching out. I don't think anything that my old self did was really wrong. I think in many ways I'm kind of proud of being 16 and booking myself into a counsellor. I mean, crikey, that's a big step. I don't think I'd have done that. It was a big step. And if I'm brutally honest, I think I did it more for my parents than me at that time because I saw the pain my mum was going through with the tragedy of her friend's loss. So I think maybe I did it for, for them, but I don't think I would change much. I would just tell my old self, if you're struggling, speak to people, get help. But no, amongst all of that, you have a toolkit at your disposal that you can use at any time to benefit your mental health. 
We've come to our final topic of conversation, Matt, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests, if we have time. It is a general natter and quickfire chat about mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health, mate? Honestly, right now, it's pretty good. And I'm aware that that doesn't always stay that way. But I've got over all of the firsts with my dad's passing. And by that, I mean the first anniversary of, of his death and Father's Day, birthdays, Christmas. I've done all of the firsts. And I think once you've got over that, you can really move on a little bit more. Not completely, of course, but that's been a massive help. I felt like I was in a bit of a daze for the whole of last year. And obviously, I've got a little baby girl coming. So that's exciting and terrifying all at the same time. Obviously, it's been a long journey because of IVF, which along with mental health is something I'm keen to normalise because so many people are going through it, but they all feel alone because we don't talk about it enough. So that's been difficult. But as of this right moment, like, you know, right now, this moment today, you know, it's sunny outside and hot. It's a bit warm. (laughs) I think things right now are are very good. Are you okay? I'm good, mate. Yeah, 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 I'm good. I went through a a bit of a down few days last week. I had an infection in my nose, which wasn't great. And that's gone antibiotics for a few days. So that was a bit grim. Uh, So I felt quite shit, but I'm out of that now. My nose does not look like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer anymore. So yeah, I'm in a decent decent place, mate. I'm in a decent place. What age were you, mate, when you became self-aware of your mental health and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical, and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health. 17. I say 17. It could have been 16, just turning 17. But when I first got clinically diagnosed as being depressed. That really was chucking it in your face then. It wasn't just a gradual process. That really was as much of a eureka moment as possible. Yeah, <laughs> it was. I mean, up until then, I, I hadn't really ever had to face any issues with myself because you know, when you're young, if you're lucky enough to have the parents I had, a lot of things are taken care of for you. So I didn't really ever have to analyse much. But when you feel the way I felt back then and you sit down with a professional who tells you you're clinically depressed and you know gives you a prescription to go and get some medication from the pharmacy, you know, you have to stop and you have to look at what's going on. And my motivation for changing then was probably as much for to help my parents out as it was for me. And tell me about the first ever conversation you had with someone about your mental health. So who was it with? What did you say? And what impact did it have? Did it feel like on the one hand, this big burden or moment or weight have a lift off your shoulders or on the other, something quite easy, insignificant and normal to do? I think walking into the child psychiatrist, psychologist, whichever, was like a big deal. And because I thought, what is this? Like, I felt like it was kind of an out of body experience. Um, So that was kind of the first time I'd really sat down and and talked about what was going on in my life. But I think weirdly, the moment which sticks out even more was about a year later, I went down to Newquay with some friends, you know, because we weren't old enough to go into clubs, but we probably just about snuck in. And I had my bag with me and it was open and there was a few of us in a room and there was a, a female friend of mine and she looked at my bag and she saw my pill box and she was like, oh, Cipramil, I'm on that. And I was like, oh, are you? Like, because she was about my age, might have been a year younger. And I'm there kind of thinking right now without talking to many people about it other than, you know, my family. I thought I was the only person in the world who was a 16, 17-year-old guy on antidepressants. So I'd kind of keeping it a little bit on the back burner. But yeah, she said it. Oh, yeah, I'm on those too. And I think for me, that was a massive eye-opener was like, maybe this isn't as crazy a 
isolating experience as I thought it would be. And what things do you find in life that trigger your mental health? So it could be things people say to you, a sound, being in a particular social environment, or have you not figured all of them out yet? I think what has the biggest impact on my mental health is problems in relationships that I have that mean a lot to me those are always the hardest and I know that's kind of that's kind of an obvious thing to say but if I've got any problems in my relationship or with my family or some close friends those really hit me hard because they mean so much to me Mm. but it tends to need to be for me to start to fall a kind of a sequence of events I think I've now got the resilience to deal with kind of one bad thing maybe like one big thing and a little thing but I think if I start to have too many at the same time then I will probably put myself in to see somebody because if I've got say a really big problem with a relationship or with a family member and then something happens on top of that I don't seem to have the capacity as a human being to be able to deal with both of them and continue living like a normal life. And conversely then, mate, what positive tools and methods do you use to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have worked? Maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? Okay, well, let's start with the ones that haven't worked because I don't know if we've all been there, but I remember having some terrible times when I was like in my early 20s and hitting the alcohol Mm. hard. Like, this will solve it because it will be like... (laughs) This is a depressant. This will solve it. (laughs) This will solve it. This is a temporary solution to this long-term problem what could possibly go wrong i'm talking like beers jack daniels the works mate it it all went down and clearly none of it worked for me i mean you wake up the next day you feel worse your mind is in a, a much worse place and the problem lo and behold is still there so things that do work i mean wow like i've dedicated a room in my house to a meditation room I know not everybody's lucky enough to have a spare space. I was but, about to say, yeah. But if you if you do, like, it's only a small room, but I've kind of got a little mini waterfall and I've got, like, some Buddhas around there and it's a really zen place, like, lots of little Some whale trinkets. noises going on in the background or I've, what? I've got, it's usually, like, it's well, it's a little waterfall. So there's some, some like, little splashing of water. And I sit up there sometimes and I just meditate, you know? So that's one thing. But the biggest thing for me has been running i mean being health conscious for me does help as well like eating healthy but that's probably most people when you're feeling bad you may have been eating badly but for me regardless of my diet or anything like that running has been phenomenal just running for headspace and and reading as an extra kind of add-on has also been just a way to escape sometimes Mm. come from without you know from within yourself and just kind of lose yourself in in something external well that's my next question what has been the best book that you've read for your mental health i call it mental health bible it doesn't have to be self-help or mental health related it can be fiction or anything you want i'm gonna go with a book that i was bought by my wife not long ago called billy no mates Oh, I've heard of this book. Yeah, I tried to get on the podcast. He blanked my email. Did he? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did he? Oh, he probably didn't see. He's probably had loads of other more important media bids. Uh, Max something or other, his name is. I can't remember his name, but it's a really good book. And basically, the premise of this book is that when you're a young guy, you have loads of male friends at school or whatever, university. But as you get older and you start families, these circumstances mean that you don't see your friends as much. And the idea of the book and what the book says is that women seem to be better 
stereotypically at keeping hold of like a, a close group of yeah, friends yeah. and and guys don't but actually guys really need that kind of male camaraderie mm. as an element of their life in which to offload in a setting which you can't replicate with any other place like friends at work or you know female friends or your family or your kids you can have great times in those settings but they're not the same as having a group of lads mm. where you just rip each other to pieces yeah, that's the way I'll, that's the way we show love mate it's the way men show love and those scenarios dwindle as you get older and you might find them in like a locker room or you might find them like in a pub but you do need to get together with your male friends and just offload for that to have a positive impact so that's what the book's about and i'd say it was a, a nice way to kind of hold a mirror up to my own life and go mm. oh yeah that's true i do do that do you know what the one thing i will say in defense of us in in the sense that yes we can be not as good as women stereotypically in keeping that close circle of friends however what we are better at i think than women at is that if i don't see you for seven years mm. i can just pick up with you like that and it's like we've never been away whereas i think women have to put more effort into keeping that level do you know what i mean i've definitely got some friends of mine who if i haven't seen them for a long period of time we can just pick it up and that's that's such a blessing. I wish even at this point in my life, and I was talking about this just the other day, I just wish I had more opportunity to see my male friends yeah. and, and offload. I think that would probably be the one thing right now that my life is mm. possibly missing. I I always quote this tweet that I saw. I can't remember who wrote it. It was years ago. And it was something along the lines of, how can I not see my primary school friend in 20 years? And I ask him how he's doing. And he goes, fucking hell, mate. Not much. Same old, same old. <laughs> that's it that's it it's like it's been 20 years how can you say that such a lad answer but so good I love it I love it very true if there was a mantra in life that summed up your mental health what would it be and why a mantra for my like mental health like a quote health. a saying a phrase um I'm not too sure if I've got like a phrase for it but actually there was one I read the other day you know what, I might have even read it on the way here. I think it was something like, it was some, this is probably going to be wrong. Something like an ounce of remedy is better than a pound of cure. And what that is basically means is if you put in a little bit proactively to try and stop a problem happening, it's much better than having to invest. Get into crisis a lot. and then putting loads exactly. in. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. for me, I guess that sums it up the best because... I try and do little things. If I feel myself slipping, I'll do a little thing like go for a walk or read a book or go for That's a run. We get better as men out. We always get to crisis point to do something. Exactly. And we need to get before that. Yeah. I try and invest in little stages beforehand so I don't completely neglect my mental health and then have to put in loads of work, loads of time once I've kind of fallen too far. And as a final question, mate, this is a broad one. What more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all walks of life, feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health, if, most importantly, they want to do it. I think, you know, credit to you for doing this podcast because, for me, talking is the number one way of normalising a situation. The way that people feel less alone is by hearing that more people are 
having the same type of experiences that they are having, not only does that equip them with a skill set or tools in which to deal with them through like a, a friend or something like that, but it also makes them feel less alone mm. in, in the whole process. So talking about it is is for me the number one thing, which is why I'm I'm sat doing this podcast with you. And on that wonderful note, Matt Graveling, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to me, pal. Cheers, buddy. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In pod. I want to say a big thank you to Matt for talking so openly about losing his dad for the first time and his journey into, out of and back into journalism and, of course, for checking in with me. I will put some links to where you can follow Matt on social media in the show notes and find out more about the brilliant reporting he has done in the past and will continue to do so in the future. I'll sign us off by saying, if you've liked what you've heard, please give this podcast a share on social media. Tell your friends or your work colleagues or your family about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and help us out with the algorithms. Please don't feel embarrassed about doing that. I haven't had a podcast review since August 2022. Please, guys, help us out. Please, please, please. (laughs) If you like what we're doing here at Vent and want to support us even further, you can do so by going to our Patreon. That's www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. Or you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe or buy a Vent t-shirt or buy a ticket to the Just Checking Podcast live show on Friday, September 29th. 2023 at the Eton Manor Rugby Club in North East London. All of those links are on our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash venthelpuk. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. Bye.